Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional professional journeys, experiences, reflections, big ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic publications and conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, your host for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders and professor at Columbia University. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Pamela Keel. Dr. Keel is Distinguished Research Professor in the Department of Psychology at Florida State University. She's contributed to the field of eating disorders across a wide range of areas. I'm sure we'll touch on many of them today. In particular, she's pioneered work in the area of purging disorder. Dr. Keel has served as president of both the Academy for Eating Disorders and the Eating Disorders Research Society. And among other awards, she received the AED's Leadership in Research Award and was the inaugural recipient of the AED Leadership in Mentorship Award. So we'll look forward to hearing more about both of those uh, as we go. Pam, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So as we get started, let's just begin with how you got into psychology and then eating disorders. Yeah. So the way I think about my career is that I do eating disorders research and the order in which this all came together is I think I really started by understanding that I was interested in doing research that would improve people's lives. I honestly thought pretty ambitious as a kid, but after I was diagnosed with insulin dependent diabetes, I kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to do biomedical research. I'm going to come up with a cure for this disease because frankly, the the methods that we use to manage it aren't awesome. So that's, I started with the idea of, I want to do research to make people's lives better. And honestly, my own life better. The next stage was college where I suddenly think, you know what? I don't think I want to go to medical school. I'm going to major in anthropology because I took this elective and it was awesome. And I love focusing on cultures and how they influence what people think is true and right and best and correct. Like I just was completely enamored with the topic. And I kind of going through my college career, it's like, oh, you could take an elective now. And I took an elective in the Department of Psychology. It was just on eating disorders. It was my first course in psychology. I was not heading towards psychology, but the the course packet included what I now appreciate are truly seminal articles in the field, like Garner and Garfinkel's sort of like Playboy centerfold and, you know, and, and the Miss America contestants and the dieting articles study, like those trends you know, dieting causes binge eating, the Palladian Herman paper and the American psychologist, like just all of these really kind of core papers that I started, like I did like all the required reading. I did the recommended reading. I started looking to find things that I could read myself. And the next thing was, is that I think I might be interested in doing eating disorders research. So the very final step was deciding to go into clinical psych to do that. So you sort of backed into it. Yeah, it's like research, yes. Eating Uh disorders research, yes. Oh, what career is going to make it possible for me to do eating disorders research? When you took the eating disorders elective, uh, you hadn't taken intro psych? 
Nope. So you ju- you you sort of leapfrogged over the intro course into this specialty course. Do you remember what made that course look interesting? What why would that appeal to you at the moment? Yeah. Well, I was actually looking at two different electives. The other one I want to say was the grotesque and the comedic in literature. And so I shopped that course and there were like six other people in the room and the professor was using a language that I was like, if this is English, I don't think I speak it. So I was like, oh, I don't think I could take that course. (laughs) And then eating disorders was something that I knew about. I knew about from, you know, the experience of a close family member that I love dearly, but didn't really know about. And it just seemed like exactly the kind of thing that you would take for no other reason than that, because you were curious about it. Mm-hmm. So to my mind, the reason I was taking it was exactly because that's what I thought an elective should be. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, in terms of eating disorders, were you, you were at college. So that's a time when lots of young people had their first experiences with eating disorders or the eating disorder becomes more part of their experience in for themselves or of their peer group. Was that the case for you? Did you have roommates or friends who were describing eating disorders to you? Yeah. And in fact, what I would sort of characterize it is, is a form of awakening where all these things that I never really questioned or thought were problematic, or maybe I registered them as problematic, but they didn't fit anywhere, really. Mm -hmm. I suddenly was like, oh, this idea that body dissatisfaction is a normative discontent. It's like, this, this is just true. Mm-hmm. Like everybody I know believes that being thin is good and mm-hmm. being fat is bad. And it's not, it's not even related to health. It's, it goes so far beyond any beliefs about what would make you healthy or unhealthy. It goes way beyond that. So really feeding into that anthropological perspective, it was kind of like, wow, this is, this feels like a very culturally driven Mm-hmm. illness that mm-hmm. um more work needs to be done on but yeah getting back to just your real question it, i realized that you know i realized that a roommate that i had 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 an eating disorder and even though she had described herself as having recovered from anorexia nervosa that she was describing that she would throw up sometimes not mm-hmm. to lose weight, but to keep the weight off. And I didn't really know what to make of that when she told me that. Um, I thought about my own struggles with controlling my diabetes, you know, this kind of like, well, what do you do if your blood sugars are high? Well, you should give yourself more insulin. But if I give myself more insulin, then I'm going to gain weight and I don't want to gain weight. So now what do I do? Like this sort of like all this kind of all these things that were going on suddenly fit mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. So it's so interesting, Pam, because your interest in wanting to do some research that's going to improve quality of life, being interested in anthropology, and then taking this eating disorders elective, in part because it sounded interesting, and in part because the 
um, something in the grotesque. What was it? The, the, the comedic in the grotesque and literature. Grotesque. Oh, it just scared me. Just yeah, flat out. Like, and I'm not easily intimidated. Not doing that. So I guess I'll do this. Uh, but really, in a certain way, I think to myself, as you're describing that, that at some point, there and there probably are places now where there's actually an anthropology course about eating disorders, right? Yes. That um, that p- brings all of these fields together in a way that's very true and real. There's a lot of research about this. There's a lot of in the world of anthropology and culture, and then you get to psychology and young adults, and you're living it at this university. So you take this class, you read these seminal works, it's really interesting, you're going to do this, and how do you get from the idea, the light bulb being switched on to actually doing this work? Yeah, so I um, really kind of, so I took that elective spring of my sophomore year, so it gave me a little bit of lead time. Mm -hmm. So spring of my junior year, I took intro to psych. Uh the professor of the course. And before I share this part of the the story, I just really need to emphasize that the only person's story I can tell is my story. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I just need to be there real, real clear. But the professor of that course was Todd Heatherton. And he was a doctoral student with Janet Palavia and Peter Herman. And he was doing research on restraint theory. And so when he presented the lecture on eating disorders He's like, you know, come to my office hours if you want to talk to it. And I so talk about it. So I did go to his office hours and we did talk about it. And he was like, hey, if you ever have any other questions, you know, feel free to stop by. And so I had applied and gotten some grants to stay in Cambridge over the summer to do my senior honors thesis in anthropology. And I was doing a qualitative study on eating disorders for that. But I also volunteered to work with a local psychologist who had a bunch of survey data and it just given me the surveys to enter and then analyze and then come back with it. And so I did that, but then I didn't know what to make of it. And so I reached out to Todd again. I was like, hey, I have all these this output from analyses, but I'm not sure what it means. Would you be willing to meet with me? And he's like, sure. So I, I met with him and um He's looking at, you know, dot matrix printout on ribbon fed paper right, from right. mainframe computers from the computer lab. And he's That's like, okay. okay, so let me get this straight. You did this. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, by yourself. I was like, well, no, there was somebody in the computer lab who helped me figure out how to read the data into the program and how, like, I got help on it. He's like, but like, what's the deal? And I told him what the deal was. And he said, well, how about this? you come work for me, I'll pay you. And if you do a study with me um, and you write it up and it gets published, you'll be the first author on it. And I was like, absolutely, sounds awesome. Um, So it was really over that summer that I realized that a clinical psychology program was the right way to go. So I made the decision the summer before my senior year to apply to a clinical psychology program. There weren't that many programs that focused on eating disorders. So I was really fortunate to get into the University of Minnesota, where Gloria Leon had an R01 to do eating disorders research. You know, like that was very fortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah. And the other thing, you don't know this, but Todd had sent me on an assignment, go to the library and just read some recent articles on eating disorders to design an independent project. So in addition to my senior thesis, I did an independent research project with Todd and it focused on mothers, daughters, daughters, mothers, and fathers in disordered eating. But the inspiration from that project was your paper with uh -huh. your doctoral advisor in which you had looked at college women's EDI drive for thinness scales and found that those who had high drive for thinness had moms with high drive for thinness. That's so right. your, your publication was actually the, the framework that I used to design my very first study that I was the PI of in the field of eating disorders. What a lovely bit of information I didn't know. I think we can stop right here, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but good thing that you didn't stop right there. You kept at it. So you, where did you go? So you were in Minnesota. Um, you are now starting to develop your ideas about what you're going to pursue. What's out there that starts to give shape to your own research? Another kind of critical juncture was as a doctoral student, you know, Gloria Leon was my advisor. She had an R01. We had tons of data at our disposal. And for whatever reason, not just for whatever reason, I mean, I stayed in touch with Todd. So he continued to mentor me. I added Gloria as a mentor. I added Will Grove, um, who's no longer with us as a mentor, Bill Iacono as a mentor. Will Grove suggested that I reach out to Jim Mitchell. So I reached out to Jim Mitchell. Through him, I met Carol Peterson and Scott Crow. And my, my strategy throughout life has been to be appreciative that different people offer the different things that you need to grow as a person. And so rather than trying to put all my men mentee needs into one basket, I would like distribute them to multiple baskets, you know? Uh -huh. And Jim was really the one who helped me uh, decide what to do my dissertation research on. Uh -huh. And that was that long-term follow-up study of bulimia nervosa. Uh -huh. And that then was sort of the first piece that led to the research on purging disorder. Mm -hmm. You are beginning to see something in the field and that everyone sees, but there is some way in which you start to look at the binging and purging behaviors or the and related aspects of eating disorders and pull them apart in a, in a way that really became fundamental to the work that you went on to do. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that really had its start during my first year as an assistant professor. Um, I was working to get papers out from my dissertation, which is that long-term follow-up study of bulimia nervosa. Um, and I wanted to know the predictive validity of bulimia nervosa. Like, did people who were coming in with that diagnosis 10 to 15 years later, did they still have that? Or were they just crossing over willy-nilly to anorexia nervosa or this new possible provisional eating disorder or binge eating disorder? Um, and the answer there was that they were 10 times more likely to still have bulimia nervosa than to cross over to either anorexia nervosa or binge eating disorder. It was definitely, there was definitely some longitudinal stability to that cluster. Right. But 
I was finding that in my own data, that women were roughly equally likely to still be binging and purging as they were to be purging, but no longer meeting full criteria for bulimia nervosa because the binge eating just wasn't fully there. Mm-hmm. And most often what it was is that they would purge to control their weight, mm-hmm. but they weren't consuming objectively large amounts of food before that would happen. It's like they had dropped the binge eating. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, are they just in partial remission? Like they're on their way to recovery, but you know, 10 to 15 years out, it didn't seem like this was a stage of recovery. It seemed that they had perhaps crossed over into something else, right? The second piece of it was that, as I mentioned, binge eating disorders, this new provisional diagnosis, everybody is doing research on binge eating disorder, me included. And we were trying to recruit people from the community who had binge eating episodes. And we wanted people with bulimia nervosa purging, bulimia nervosa non-purging, which was a subtype in the DSM-IV, binge eating disorder. And for the binge eating disorder group, we wanted to look at those who had a body weight that fell within sort of what the CDC guidelines would suggest is sort of like in that range from 18.5 to 25 kilograms per meter squared. And then a group that would have a BMI 30 kilograms per meter squared and higher. And I was really trying to dissociate what was weight and what was eating, you know, what was the eating disorder in the eating disorder in that study. So we plaster Cambridge with posters and we get lots and lots of calls in. And what we discover is that about 30% of the people who are calling in, in response to a poster that just says, do you binge? Mm-hmm are describing episodes that we can't count because they don't involve enough food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And among those individuals, 75% of them were purging. Mm -hmm. So that's frustrating. Right. That's (laughs) real frustrating. So individuals have eating disturbances that don't fit neatly into the boxes we've built. How is that, right? How dare they? (laughs) And I will say that whatever study you are doing and whatever your inclusion and exclusion criteria are, the people who call you will always make you feel like you are studying the wrong thing. Like I just, no matter what you study, no matter what you try to do, the people who call in, you'll be like, okay, clearly we missed the mark. So true. The third thing that there's, there is a third thing. And I just want to mention it is that I had started a clinical fellowship at Mass General in their eating disorders unit. Mm-hmm. And I had one hour a week for intake assessments. And then I also had three additional hours for working with clients in therapy. Mm-hmm. And three of the clients that I saw through that fellowship very early on were not underweight they were not reporting that they were having large out of control binge eating episodes and all three were using vomiting as a means to control their weight. And so again, I'm confronted with this, now what do I do? At the time, cognitive behavioral therapy is an evidence-based treatment for bulimia nervosa. Mm -hmm. We don't really have anything for anorexia nervosa. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to proceed as if what they're doing is close enough to bulimia nervosa that I'll use this treatment. And the very first thing I discovered 
is that that initial iteration of cognitive behavioral therapy really did not address purging at all. Mm -hmm. Effectively, Mm -hmm. purging was a consequence of the binge eating. So once you successfully tackled that binge eating, the purging was going to go away on its own. I was like, that is just not going to work for these patients. And it's not even true based on my own long-term follow-up data. So it was those three things coming together all at once that I think really pushed me to take notice. What's the sequence, the order of things with the emergence of research identifying binge eating without purging and the emergence of data identifying purging without binge eating. Are they pretty much moving together or how do they sequence in terms of ideas? Well, the binging without purging definitely has a head start, right? Because Mickey Stunkert in 1959 introduces the phrase binge eating disorder. And in 1994, the DSM-4 is published, and it has binge eating disorder as a named example Mm -hmm. among the eating disorder not otherwise specified category. And in the appendix, it has provisional diagnostic criteria. So 1994 is my second year of graduate school. Mm -hmm. And the field exploded with research on binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. In terms of purging disorder, and sort of my efforts to find a literature on it, Jim Mitchell had published, and I think it was in preparation for the DSM-4, sort of a breakdown of what patients at the University of Minnesota's eating disorder program, what they looked like if they didn't meet full criteria for anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, because those are the only two eating disorders in the 3R. And the fourth type he described was people who were binging or purging rather, but not binging, like they would purge after eating, say, three cookies. Mm -hmm. And so that was listed as an example of an EDNOS, an eating disorder not otherwise specified. It wasn't like nobody had ever conceived of the possibility or seen it. It's just that it didn't have a name. It didn't have a definition and people weren't picking it up. Right. And you test the existing models of treatment, find that there's not sufficient depth or sophistication around the phenomenology of the binge eating itself, uh, the, excuse me, around the purging itself. And so tell us how that gets you to this big idea around purging disorder. Yeah, well, first I have to confess that my my idea, my initial thought wasn't very big at all. It was like, why do we care how much they eat before they purge? Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Who cares? Does size matter? So the very first study was like conceived as just kind of really testing whether there was any difference. Mm-hmm. And pretty skeptical about whether it would matter that much. And in a weird way, because it would make research easier if everybody who called, who purged was eligible. Mm-hmm. And it would make it would make it easier if that were true. And I didn't know yet that the cognitive behavioral therapy I was doing with my clients was going to fail. Uh-huh. I didn't know right. that yet. That's therapy right. takes a long time, people. And you don't, I mean, 
like you don't know, like you, you don't give up immediately when people aren't symptom free in the first month. Right. So, I mean, like a lot of things are coming at the same time and effectively over the same now two, three year period, I'm doing this initial study and it's like, oh, wait, there are significant differences between mm-hmm. the group that meets full criteria for bulimia nervosa and the group that doesn't because they're just not eating enough food, mm-hmm. that there are some meaningful, clinically meaningful differences here, not in terms of severity of the eating disorder, but just in terms of features that might explain why one group eats so much and another group really does stop before they've eaten quite so much food. And then I'm also seeing that my clients who are sticking with me or aren't sticking with me because they're not getting better, that effectively I'm not effective with any of the folks who have come in vomiting, but not binge eating. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's in contrast to a patient I had with anorexia nervosa with whom I used cognitive behavioral therapy who absolutely did get better during the time that we were working together. So, you know, this sense of, it's not that cognitive behavioral therapy can't work outside of bulimia nervosa. It it can, um, but just that I was not able personally to adapt it effectively in that case by treating them as if they were binging. That was just not a good approach. So there's a group that's purging. Yep. That is not responding to the standard strategies of CBT that are where binging is plays such a central role. So what do you do with that? And, and how does that shape your next steps? Well, the next step is honestly to continue to probe whether bulimia nervosa and purging disorder are different. Because Mm -hmm. everything up until that point is based on self-report data, whether you're doing it via interview or self-report questionnaire, you don't know whether the same people who are telling you that they're eating less food when they binge are also telling you that they are less impulsive and telling you that, you know, like it's all like it's all just based on what people are telling you. So I focused on physiological responses to food intake that had been present in individuals with bulimia nervosa, not in healthy controls that were thought to explain the presence of binge eating in bulimia nervosa. So specifically um, cholecystokinin response to a a standardized test meal. And Mm -hmm. the, the point of the study was simply to say, well, if this is true, if that's about the binge eating, then this should be a deficit specifically in the group with bulimia nervosa purging, not present in purging disorder and not present in controls. Mm -hmm. And if we find that, that would provide evidence of an objective difference, like not just based on self-report because a participant can't control their CCK response when they're given a test meal. And that's exactly what we found. We also found that the subjective responses to that standardized test meal differed and that our participants with purging disorder, despite consuming the same amount of food, were feeling much more full and experiencing greater stomach ache and nausea. And like some of these things that for them, it was too much food. So the next step is why? 
And so that was then the follow-up to that study. So just to clarify, to pull out here, we're talking about people who already have these patterns of eating disturbance. So we're not necessarily at this point describing causation, exactly uh, caused people to develop these disorders, but we may be, we're at least mapping patterns that are biologic, behavioral, that describe different groups with different subjective and objective distress and disturbance. So, yeah, and could certainly be maintenance factors. And right. could certainly, are- certainly be maintenance factors. Because the thing that the thing that gets kind of interesting when you think about studying groups once they already have the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. is that you can never prove what was there before they had the eating disorder and you can never prove what caused the eating disorder, right? But that's actually okay. Mm-hmm. Because what you really need to understand is what's contributing to the maintenance of the eating disorder so you can target those things mm-hmm. so that the eating disorder stops. Mm-hmm. The thing that caused the eating disorder, that's closing some barn doors after the horses have run free. You're mm-hmm. not going to say, oh, that caused it. So let's fix it before it ever develops. Like mm-hmm. the eating disorder is here now. So in terms of treatment targets, starting with the correlates of the disorder, linking that to you know behavioral neuroscience research and animal models where you've got strong, strong causal inferences and then looking at whether these factors then predict the maintenance of the disorder. All of these things are sort of the steps that you need to follow to get to that last point where you say, now we're gonna test this as a mechanism. And the way we're gonna test this as a mechanism is with a treatment that will target what we think is actually maintaining the disorder and see if people actually achieve recovery. Mm -hmm. Really, as a pioneer in this field, what are your, what do you think are the critical big ideas about defining purging disorder and what we need to have top of mind? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is I'm going to start with big ideas and then I'll give a little bit of evidence if that helps. So the big idea would be that purging occurs without binge eating episodes. Mm -hmm. And by binge eating episodes, I am talking about objectively large binge eating episodes. Mm-hmm. It also occurs without subjective binge eating episodes. So the ICD criteria don't take care of people who are not underweight and are purging, but don't endorse a loss of control over their eating, right? Mm-hmm. So those people are still left out. Right. So purging can occur without binge eating. That's the first thing that is just, it feels obvious to me, but it seems pretty critically dis- critical to say. Absolutely. And the other thing I will say is that Once you go, oh, yeah, of course, then you can let go of the assumption that purging is caused by binge eating. Mm -hmm. We all know that correlation is not causation, right? We know it better than anybody else. And so we should know that the symptoms that are used to define an eating disorder are co-occurring within an individual who has that eating disorder rather than making causal inferences between them. It's also honestly about a disruption in physiological responses to food intake that are actually unique to purging disorder. Our participants with purging disorder 
have a unique as in not observed in patients with the purge subtype of bulimia nervosa, that, that they have an excessive peptide YY or PYY response to that same test meal. So, and, and it turns out that that PYY response is predicting and driving and mediating the reports of nausea and stomach ache and like fullness and desire to vomit. And then in a study that was just published, we were looking at gastric emptying, like delays in gastric emptying. And is that linked to binge eating or is it related to vomiting? And it turns out it's actually more closely related to vomiting. Mm-hmm. We tried a medication to increase gastric emptying rate to see whether if we could increase gastric emptying rate, if that would help get the food out of the stomach, reduce some of the intragastric pressure, make people feel a little bit more comfortable. But what it did is that single dose of metoclopramide definitely increased gastric emptying rate, but it caused an increase in PYY. And we were able to, we didn't mean to do this, but we were able to demonstrate with that pharmacological manipulation that by causing the change in PYY, we were able to cause a change in the gastrointestinal distress. So we now even have causal evidence that it really is the PYY response that's driving this difference. So PYY, tell us what is PYY? It is part of the symphony of responses that our body has when we take food in. So we eat food, goes through our mouth, esophagus, stomach, starts going into the intestinal tract, and all sorts of things change in our body that communicate with our brain to kind of help our brain understand when we've achieved a state of satiation where you can kind of stop eating now. And there is really compelling evidence that individuals who have objectively large binge episodes have a weak, weak set of signals in terms of it's time to stop now. Their Mm -hmm. bodies respond to the same amount of food as if it is much less food. Mm-hmm. So that signal that their brain gets to stop is just like the volumes turned way down on it for folks mm-hmm. with those objectively large binge episodes, not our purging disorder folks. Mm-hmm. So that's that stop signal. Mm-hmm. PYY is part of a delayed response to food intake, meaning that in the 30 to 50 minutes after you've eaten, that's when your PYY responses really increase and they extend out to two hours. PYY within an individual where everything is working perfectly is a thing that basically delays when you start eating the next time. So you stop eating and then it's not like we start eating as soon as we're not full anymore. There are these other signals that have a two hour time frame, and PYY is sort of our satiety signal. It's the thing that controls the time between when you end one meal and when you begin the next. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. for participants with purging disorder, their satiation signals are intact, meaning that they're getting pretty much the same stop signal that control participants are getting. And both are getting a stop signal that's much stronger than patients Mm -hmm. with bulimia nervosa are getting, right? Mm -hmm. But once they've committed to the amount of food that they're going to eat, in the sort of 30 to 50 minute range, their body starts acting like they've eaten a truly excessive quantity of food. Mm -hmm. And that change is linked and and pharmacological studies looking at PYY. Fortunately, somebody I was giving a talk to alerted me to an article where it's like, oh, they did this pharmacological manipulation of 
of PYY where they showed that it caused nausea. And it was like, oh, okay then. So when right. it gets too high, it, it can cause this. So you've really expanded uh, the field in terms of thinking about purging, not only as a compensatory behavior, as you said earlier, but as a piece of disruption, um, disturbance, that not making it a case about how it all got started, but once it gets started, that there are clear cycles of maintenance that are part of the story specific to purging. And as you've done this work, and really these ideas have crystallized for you, I know that you have gotten a, have recently published a book about this work. Tell us the who this book is for, uh, the title of the book, and what you hope somebody who reads the book um, will will come away with in terms of their understanding of purging disorder. Yeah, so the title of the book is The Void Inside, Bringing Purging Disorder to Light. It's published by Oxford University Press. It was actually published summer of 2020. And so if that doesn't seem like a particularly great time for a book on an eating disorder that most people haven't heard of to come out, that's Uh true. That was not that was not a great time to try to bring attention to something that people have not heard about because truthfully, there were more important things going on in the world at that time. I'm not going to lie. And in terms of who it's written for, it's actually written for not us. Anybody who is trained in statistics would get an empirical journal article that's publicly accessible because all of my research is funded by the NIH Anybody who would download that article and skip the intro and skip the discussion and just immediately read the methods and the results, because that's all they really need to know to find out what I did and what I found, that book is not for them. Y'all can just read the empirical literature. That's what you should read anyway. This is a book for people who may not have enough time to stay up with the empirical literature, so clinicians for sure. It's a book for educators because one in 50 women and and one in 500 men. And I can't say what proportion of individuals who identify as non-binary, but most of the data I'm seeing in terms of, you know, risk for eating pathology and non-binary individuals would suggest that it's going to be at least as high as what it is in women, um, Mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're thinking about like, that's, that means that everybody knows somebody with purging disorder. Mm -hmm. because everybody knows at least 50 females Mm -hmm. (laughs) you just do um so you might not know that you know them but the goal is to make it easier for those individuals to get the help that they need really a huge contribution and resource and uh i hope that people who do have these questions or concerns will will get the book in that following on from that, Pam, but in a slightly different way, you know, your book is about getting your science out there and your work, you've worked very hard over the years to translate your science into important, meaningful, actionable 
uh, knowledge so that you come back around to where you started, where you wanted to do research that had an impact. And I know that as a psychologist and as a psychologist in a psychology department, that um, you know you've been really committed to teaching and to education and to mentorship. You received a mentorship award. Um, as you look ahead and you see the next generation coming up, what's a, a, a word of wisdom that you have from your years of experience that you'd like to share with this upcoming generation? Yeah, so I think the first, there are a couple of things I will say. One is that I really do think that there's wisdom in building a network of mentors rather than thinking about it as a one-on-one relationship, really thinking about how you're going to form relationships with mentors, maintain those relationships throughout your career and add to that team of people because each mentor is going to offer something that's really critical. I also wanna echo a point that Ruth Wiseman made about your helpers, that um, some of my, a lot of my productivity, a lot of the support that I've had in my research career comes from a really close collaboration with Kelly Klump, who was a year behind me at the University of Minnesota. So to peer to peer mentorship, is really critically important. And I want to say that there are data that suggests that for women in science, that those female to female peer-to-peer networks end up being an incredible predictor of success. So pay attention to the people who are your own age. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is to think about what is the nature of mentorship and what are the models we use to think about it? Like in academia, We talk about our academic grandparents, and that would be the advisor of my advisor. And then there's this thing to do lineages, like who do you come from? But here's the problem with that. It creates an analogy between being a parent and a child and a mentor and a mentee. And that's, I don't think that that's a very helpful analogy. I think it's probably better to think about it a little bit more as not quite a marriage because a mentor will be married to too many mentees, a polygamous marriage. I don't know. But the point is, the point is, is that think about it as more of a marriage. Like I am a mom. I have sons. They didn't get to choose to be born. I totally made that choice for them. Right. And once they're born, that's it. No matter what, I am their mom. They may get a mother-in-law down the load, but you know, too bad. This is what they're stuck with. And they didn't get to choose. That's what real parenting relationships look like. Uh-huh. Mentorship relationships, on the other hand, both people enter into the relationship through an active process of choosing. And uh-huh. both people choose to stay in the relationship through an active process. And frankly, both people grow and develop in Mm -hmm. that relationship, meaning that I grow as a mentor, even as a mentee, grows as a mentee. We're both going different through different stages of our life. I've worked with undergraduates. I've worked with graduate students. I've worked with, you know, early career assistant professors who are making that transition to get their first NIH large RO1. 
And I find the process so exciting. But as a mentee, as the person who's looking for a mentor, you know, really own your part in identifying who you're going to work with, taking responsibility for what you're putting into the relationship and appreciating that you can work with a lot of different people, like just like your mentor can mentor more than one trainee, you as a trainee can work with more than one mentor. And it doesn't have to be sequential. Mm-hmm. It can be all at the same time. I think I think that would be really good for people. Clearly, you are practicing what you preach in building a network of mentors and mentees. And in that way, contributing to really an expanded understanding of eating disorders and and getting people to have conversations and think more broadly and think differently about what we think we know so that we can continue to advance the field. So Pam, I want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks for the work that you're doing and your contributions to the field of eating disorders and specifically bringing out the critical disturbances around purging disorder. Thanks so much. Thank you.